Disruptive CEO Nation is the place where young entrepreneurs and company founders tell it like it is when it comes to their journey, vision, technology, culture, and whatever they feel like. Your host, Allison K. Summers, believes how you choose to play the world is completely up to you, and her guests prove it. Now let's get disruptive. Hello, everyone. This is Allison Kay, and I am thrilled today to talk with a guest who is going to share with us her philosophy on distributed entrepreneurship. Um, for her business, she is bringing innovation to the international food supply chain by bringing transparency into getting tea from the farm and into your cup. So, Elise, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell everybody your full name, who you are, and what you, what you do in the business world today. My name is Elise Peterson, and I am the founder and CEO of T-Let. Uh, T-Let is a B2B marketplace for farmers around the world to distribute their products to small to medium-sized food businesses. Right now, we're focused on tea, which is the Camellia sinensis crop. Not many people know that all tea comes from one plant. So uh, just like how Amazon started working, uh, selling books at first, and now Amazon sells everything, that's the same concept we have here where we are tackling uh, the, the tea industry, which is one single crop, um, building up the technology and the infrastructure, um, and uh, we will be diversifying into other agricultural commodities. So I want to come in and hear more about the business and the business model that you have today. But um, let's go back to what motivated you to say, I, I want to be in the tea business and I, I want to do this. Yeah. So I don't have a tea culture. I didn't grow up with a tea culture. It's uh, new to me. I'm American. You know, we didn't, we didn't really have a tea culture up until about five years ago, but uh, I do have a food culture. I'm very interested in food. I'm, I'm uh, a food scientist. Uh, I have a BS in, in food science and technology. I worked in the food industry in Southern California for several years and I just became quite jaded on, on where the industry is because I felt uh, more than anything, uh, I wasn't preparing food for people and sharing food for people for sustenance. It was more just uh, a sales, you know, profit margin game uh, where, you know, my job was essentially just uh, finding loopholes in the regulations so I could put more preservatives and extend the shelf life. And this, for me, was no longer food. Uh, so uh, at a young age, a friend convinced me to join the Peace Corps. So uh, I worked in Niger, West Africa for two years with rural farmers. Um, and so the first time in my life as, you know, a, an enthusiast of food and, and a, a scholar of food, I was finally in the soil and with the people that created food. And it's funny how there is a major disconnect in, in the academic world of food and, and, and actual agriculture. Uh, so I... Um, I was really inspired by that work and found that the people that I was living and working with there had a really unique happiness that I'd never seen before, even though they had faced so much adversity and, and pain and suffering. Um, and, and I ended up coming to the conclusion, the reason why they were so happy is because life was simple, of course, but the reason why it was simple was because they, they were very connected with the things that they actually needed, their family, their community, and their food. They only consumed what they produced. So they were very intimately connected with every grain that they ate, every bite that they had. Um, and I realized that that's, 
that's what's missing, you know, in the Western world and in the, in the modern world where uh, food is convenience and, and, you know, you ask a child, where does food come from? And they say, oh, it's the plastic wrapper from the convenience store. And uh, there's something really troubling about that. Um, and so as a, uh, a woke uh, food professional, I came back uh, to the States and the first job that I took as a food scientist was with a uh, green tea manufacturer. It's actually the largest tea manufacturer in the world. They had a factory in, in Hawaii where I was living and I was their food, um, food safety supervisor. Uh, so I uh, managed quality control and uh, really fell in love with tea and and this was you know a nice product to drink and for the first time in the industry I was feeling like I, I wasn't poisoning people uh, you know as a healthy product the more we sold the healthier people got so uh, I uh, became very enthusiastic about tea even though I didn't know anything about tea yet a uh, very very little bit I knew um, but you know I started building the traceability program for the the company uh, so you know when uh, a food company gets a call from a supplier saying that there's a salmonella in this lot number of product. It is the manufacturer's responsibility to recall all the infected product from the shelf. So I was building this program, but there was no coding system for any of the raw ingredients coming in. And I had asked if, uh, if I could build this coding system and they told me it wasn't, it wasn't my work. Uh, this is a Japanese company, so I didn't speak Japanese. Uh, so um, I ended up getting a Japanese MBA. Uh, just I, oh my. Solution. I was like, I can learn Japanese in business and I'll come back and I'll, I'll, I'll be able to do this. Um, but it's interesting how things work in the world because during that MBA, uh, in the summer between my, my two uh, years there, I was hired by the the university by the state of Hawaii to do a market feasibility study on Hawaii grown tea because of my tea experience and my food experience and, and working with farmers, uh, I was hired to do this. And so I just dove, you know, deep into the industry and learned about the pains and struggles and learned why there was no coding system on these, these teas coming to the manufacturer because it is a highly commodified product that is just aggregations of, um, you know, materials that are being purchased from all over the place, blended together, um, and then, you know, shipped around the world wherever it goes. So traceability is not even possible. But I was working with these farmers in Hawaii and started working with tea farmers in Japan and, and India and Taiwan. And a lot of this networking was just purely done through Facebook. And, you know, it's pretty amazing how, how, um, how useful social media can be. Um, and, um, I did my final semester of my MBA in Japan. I had to do it in Japan and ended up on a tea farm in Kyoto. And there I helped found a nonprofit called the International Tea Farms Alliance. Our mission was to create a bridge between tea growers and tea lovers. Um, that was not my idea. Uh, but, you know, you see with the story I just told you how much in alignment with the values that I had of, you know, trying to rebuild that connection uh, between what we produce and what we consume um, so we could be more conscious in how we consume. Uh, so uh, we did some work with the nonprofit and started networking in with farmers around the world. We hosted a festival in Japan. Uh, this was right after the tsunami and the Japanese government was funding projects uh, to promote the Japanese brand and, you know, build hope among the community. Uh, so, you know, we had used some of those funds to do this tea festival and at the end of the festival and at the end of my internship, um, they basically told me, the farmers I was working with, they told me, you know, that they, they knew that I was doing good work for them, but 
as a nonprofit, there was no funding to continue it and their businesses didn't have any extra bandwidth or opportunity, you know, to support this. So they encouraged me to create a for-profit um, partner of the same mission, but just doing profit. And they said, you know, Elise, we have like the best tea in the world and it's wanted in the market, but the channels that we can get to it are not very good. So maybe you can build a website and just sell it directly for us. So that the, the whole business idea wasn't even my idea. It was their idea. Um, you know, of course I've, I've been the one to put the work into it and, 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 you know, be the one to stick around and, and keep it flowing. Um, but, you know, again, back to the point of, of distributed entrepreneurship, I really believe that not one organization or one person should own everything. Um, the, the magic really happens when everybody comes together and the ideas are shared and communication is, is, uh, flowing between everybody. Um, and when everybody's treated autonomously, that's, you know, when, when people are motivated to, to put in the good work and, and create the, the better goal for everybody. Um, so that was it. You know, I had no entrepreneurship experience. Uh, I've science turned Peace Corps volunteer, never, you know, you know, ran a business or anything. Uh, so my first weekend back to Hawaii after the, the six months in Japan, I went to a startup weekend. A friend had recommended that I check it out. Um, it was a cool place to go see the scene. Um, and I ended up pitching and making a team. And then we took second place. And one of the judges at that startup weekend was a venture partner at one of the most prominent or early stage VC funds in Silicon Valley. And so that's how I immediately was just kind of swept up into this like tech startup world, which I'm grateful for. You know, I've learned a lot. Um, you know, T-Led is actually one of the leading Bitcoin companies. We're secretly one of the leading Bitcoin I, companies. You know world. what? I, I saw that on your, on your website. <laughs> Not that you were one of the leading ones, but it's interesting because um, I, one of my other interviews um, with Alliant Payments are a cryptocurrency merchant services company on top of everything else. And so I'm, I'm their I, like golden child customer. I don't yeah. know if you mentioned the T, the, the, no, I did not. <laughs> yeah. V, well, their name's Veeam now. They're not Align Commerce anymore, uh, but um, yeah, I work very closely with them. We're one of their star, you know, customers. We spend a lot of time working directly with them and uh, opening them up to new markets and letting them know, Hey, where is the most pain? for these B2B payments. Um, and so like Nepal and Malawi where, you know, TLED does a lot of work. Um, now we're able to send payments to every single farmer that we work with through Bitcoin in our partnership with, uh, with Align Commerce. So it's cool that you've, uh, you've inter interviewed them already. That's great. So, um, so let's talk about uh, what we find when we go to your website and a little bit about your business model, because um, I love that you're on a, a hunt for global tea ambassadors. Yeah. Um, and so you said your, your model is a B2B model. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're basically bridging uh, the growers with um, businesses. So, so tell us a little bit about the businesses that would buy um, from TLET. So the, the type of tea that we're bringing in, because it's like single origin and very high quality, it's, it doesn't fit into the conventional tea market that was already here in the U.S. So prior to um, when I started working in tea, uh, you had tea bags in the grocery store and then you had like flavored and blended tea at like the tea shops in the mall. Um, and, and those teas were all typically just lower grade, lower price teas that were kind of spun to be 
a higher quality marketing. Uh, so the tea that we're bringing in, it costs more. The price of it is more, but the value of it is extremely more. But the, the value is not understood by the market. So the buyers that we work with tend to be like newer businesses that are introducing this new product. So they they're enthusiasts of it and they want to be ambassadors of it. And so that's why we say we're seeking ambassadors because to be honest, a lot of the customers that we have are customers that like we made just from like consumers, like empowering consumers um, to uh, explore getting into business, you know, and this plays back into that whole distributed entrepreneurship rather than me building up a sales team going around and, you know, doing tea tastings and selling our tea, I'd much rather it be an autonomous small business in that local community that already has those local ties and those, that influence. Um, and rather than them, you know, selling directly for me, I try to empower them to build their own brands and build their own story because their customers ultimately are going to trust them and their brand. Not so much my brand. My brand is, uh, like maybe it's like a fair trade certification, you know, like my brand does have some value and trust to it, but uh, I'm not the, uh, the purveyor of the shop that's there every day and, and is there to pour a cup of tea for you. And I think that that's the person that should be um, the brand that, that actually sells the product um, on the, uh, the seeking for ambassadors page on our website. You might've seen, we have a little slogan there. Um, what, get into the business to fund your own habit, you know? So it's, it's not like we're, we're convincing people that they're going to become multimillionaires and get rich quick with getting into this business. And I think that that's kind of a problem with a lot of like the multi-level marketing schemes that are out there. So a lot of people get into them like thinking that they're going to become rich. They hear a story of someone else becoming rich. And so they think that they'll automatically do that. And we're trying to tell people, give them the honest truth. Hey, you know, this business is slow. It takes patience. You can build, you know, something really big and this can be a big business. But for now, if you see it just as your way of exploring your own interest in tea and sharing that exploration with others around you and make a little money to, to support that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a real big, big fan of that type of entrepreneurship. It may seem small, but it's still relevant. And it's, uh, when it's, you know, part of a bigger picture, like what we're trying to build here, it can move and it can change things and it can influence things, even though it's just someone having a little tea party in their, in their kitchen once a month. Um, you know, it does play into the bigger picture. Well, and we talk with our entrepreneurs about, you know, their operations and their behind the scenes and, and what it takes in terms of staff and, and culture. And I liked when I, when I spoke with you and, and that um, you said you, don't have direct full-time staff, but you see it more as a network team of, of people that can be engaged and involved and, and, and make a, a living after it. You know, you're out of this. And um, so how many farmers would you say are part of your network team right now? What, what countries, where are you getting your tea from? So right now we are actively selling for 18 different farmers. Um, these are all vetted and um, we, we already know their buyers and, 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 and we know the sales cycle for their, their products, but there are hundreds more in our network that we don't actively sell for. And the reason why is because a lot of these farmers, their product is not ready for the market. They're still developing quality. Um, and so that's something that we do as well, kind of like what a nonprofit would do. 
Um, but we're not a nonprofit, we're for profit. So we're motivated to help and development with these farmers, helping them with their quality control, helping them learn new skills and new techniques uh, with the goal that when their product is ready, they will you know, be using our platform for, for doing their marketing and their distribution. So, so is, are you bringing all the product only into the US right now? No, we, we distribute all over the world. We distribute all over the world. a very lightweight, high-quality product that logistics, you know, is feasible even on a small scale. Um, you know, air, air shipping things uh, in small quantities is um, – the, the tea is quality enough and high-valued enough to absorb those costs. Uh, but for, you know, our, our biggest, uh, you know, economies of scale that we're realizing, those are in the States. Uh, my warehouse is here in Las Vegas. And we, uh, we were able to bring in, you know, container loads of tea on the, the boat uh, and bring it here. And when we do that, we realize so much economies of scale. And then those just directly get shared with all of the buyers. Um, and so, yeah, we have focused most of our growth here because I'm here. And actually the market opportunity for high quality tea is the strongest in the U.S., and the reason why is because we don't have a culture or we didn't have a culture. It was kind of boycotted, actually. Tea culture was for the longest time associated with British culture, which, you know, the whole Boston Tea Party thing, we kind of, that was taboo for a while. But now uh, as people are traveling around the world, especially college students, uh, you know, uh, digital nomads, folks that are traveling around the world and they're going to China, they're going to Taiwan, they're going to Japan and they're learning about tea like good tea and they come back and they want to share that and those are exactly the folks that i connect with and say hey why don't you start a business and i'll help you get the tea um but uh we don't have an established culture so we're very open-minded about accepting someone else's culture around tea uh in uk where you know we think of having the strongest tea culture you know they have tea time every day uh, it's really hard to introduce good tea to them because you know be honest they're actually the british you know culture of of, of tea is a very kind of low lower grade lower priced tea compared to the artisanal craft stuff from like china that we're working with uh you try to introduce that tea in uk and they already have an established culture. So it's really hard to get them to accept it and to change their habits. Uh, but here in the States, we had no culture. We just have kind of this like millennial kind of culture absorbing, experiential absorbing population. Now it's, it's all young people that are really driving this market. Uh, and, and they want to have the entire tea set. They want the Chinese tea, they want the Japanese tea, they want the Korean tea, they want to collect all types of tea, which for a business like mine is really great. Like yeah. so the US market is is really good for us to be in. Um, but that doesn't discount the European market or the South American market, uh, which in the South American market is also very interesting. Uh, we do some work there and over time in this distributed entrepreneurship uh, goal that I have, Rather than TLET owning all of those distribution points and building them up ourselves, I'd rather empower one of our buyers to step, their, step up their game and, and act as an agent in this and um, get their fair exchange of value in that, in that transaction so we can grow and scale quickly without having to you know, do it internally ourselves, uh, just do it through our network. So at least you've, you've been so generous with, with your story. And I, I think you've shared some really interesting um, 
pieces. I, I really love the piece that you just shared about um, tea becoming experiential and about um, the younger generations. I think wanting to, I think what you're, what you're touching on is they want to embrace multiculturalism. They want to embrace, um, you know, diversity and, and be more open in the world. And, and I think what you're bringing to market is it, it's perfect timing. Um, I have to ask you, like I ask a lot of my guests, um, I'm sure it hasn't been all perfect. You've shared a lot of great parts of your story and your journey. Um, but do you have any naked lessons, something that maybe you're like, oh, maybe I would have done it differently. Or if I had to give somebody advice, I, I might share some wisdom with them. Yeah. I mean, the main advice I share with all entrepreneurs is, um, you know, especially whenever they're asking me about pitching and talking to investors and they want introduction to investors is, you know, I think it's, we shouldn't all be in such a rush to, to just collect money and engage our success as an entrepreneur with how much money we raise for the projects that we're working on. Because I mean, in my case, I, I did raise money early on and I was groomed by one of the top VC funds in Silicon Valley to raise as much money as possible. That was the model. It was like, just raise 5 million, 10 million, just raise as much as you can, just shoot it up to the sky. And if you fail, you fail. Don't worry. We're not mad at you. Uh, but you know, that, that puts you into a highly risky situation because you raise money and you, you, it's like monopoly money and you get onto a certain burn rate, uh, you hire employees, you, you sign a lease into an expensive office space and, um, you know, a year and a half goes fast and, you know, even $5 million can go fast, like a year and a half. And um, if you don't have the growth and especially a business like mine, that's like more of a patience game, you know, like we're, we're trying to organically build this. I did not have the metrics that the investors were excited to see. Um, and so it was really hard for me to raise money again later on after I had raised the first round. Um, and so I did, I had to go through a really painful point of, um, side hustling to keeping, keep things going. Um, you know, I, I wasn't in such a hard situation where my burn rate was so high. I, I have a lot of friends and peers who had to shut down their companies purely because they couldn't raise more money and their burn rate was too high. Um, and the business was growing. It just wasn't growing as quickly as the investors wanted. And so, you know, that's the biggest thing to keep in mind when you accept money um, is that you are going to have to be accountable to it. Um, and uh, unless you're ready to bootstrap it yourself after you're, you know, under a certain, you know, burn cycle, uh, it, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, you're, you're signing away knowing that maybe only 2% success rate. Um, and when you're building something that you're so passionate, like I am, you know, like this is, I feel like this is my life goal. I'm on my life goal. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to like, I wouldn't want to put that kind of risk on what I'm building. Um, so I'm running the operation on itself now. Like we, we are at a profitable point now. We are making money now and starting to scale on our own without, you know, outside capital. Um, but yeah, I just know a lot of like newer entrepreneurs get really romanticized. Um, and, and there's even this competitive environment, especially like in the accelerators. I did an accelerator and I feel like that was the culture of it was, 
oh, how many millions did you close last night? And how many millions did you close last week? And um, I think that's like kind of toxic for, um, for entrepreneurs that are doing real work, you know, and it takes away from your focus of, of building your business and building your sales versus, you know, just always trying to chase, um, you know, fundraising money. Yeah, well, if the dream is to be in business for yourself, um, I, I think people miss the point that, and, and for some, the venture capital money is important. But as you said, if you if you don't, and you can be more more creative and, and lean, um, and have patience as you're building your business, um, you certainly don't have to answer other people then. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's really great advice. So Elise, you said you're you are in the black now. Your company is is moving forward. Um, I love how you've shared the story about um, empower entrepreneurship. If we were to talk to you again in a few years, what do you hope you would be sharing? What what do you think would be the accomplishments or or what's the the, the vision? Yeah, so within a few years, uh, I would no longer be uh, just a tea company. You know, I think uh, by then, some of the other verticals that we've started to expand into will be mature. So we just got into herbs. Uh, so this is things like turmeric and ginger and Tulsi, which also are becoming very popular um, here in the States. Uh, cacao. Uh, so, you know, like uh, craft chocolate makers that are, that are making a bean to bar chocolate. There's a big pain point there. Um, and, and maybe even potentially into industrial hemp, which I'm really excited about, um, you know, the government's, you know, allowing uh, agriculture to proceed and exploring that arena, not just for CBD, but also for sustain, sustainable building materials and, um, you know, other uses, uh, which, you know, is, is technically a cannabis crop, which, you know, a lot of people could be afraid of, but it's it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a drug. It's, it's actually something that can be really sustainable and, and rewarding to, to our communities. So hopefully I can help that industry and, and help empower the farmers uh, because yeah, ultimately like right now, that's our biggest pain point. Like the, the, the career of farming is not profitable. Uh, developing land as homes or as other things is much more profitable than agriculture work. And so a lot of our agriculture work is being sent to places where, you know, labor is cheaper and machines can do things. Um, and that is like further, you know, further disconnecting, you know, that connection that I'm trying to build right now. So I think the key right now is, um, is to make farmers legitimate business people and respected business people that we all appreciate and value. Elise, I, I love the mission. I absolutely appreciate your story and what you're trying to do and, and also birth into the birth into the world. Um, I, I think you're right. As a mother, um, we certainly know that we shop with way too many preservatives in, um, in our diets. And I, I think this bringing innovation to the international food supply chain is, um, you know, a fantastic aspiration and I wish you nothing but the success. Thank you for sharing your story. If you enjoyed Elise's story, I'm sure you want to get a hold of her. So Elise, how can people connect with you or with your company? So uh, we are on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook. You can find us as TLETT. And uh, email would be info at tlet.com. Fantastic. Um, 
If you enjoyed this episode of Disruptive CEO Nation, please let Elise know by reaching out to her, supporting her company, add a comment, um, and share this uh, podcast episode with other people. If there is an interesting company founder or entrepreneur that you think we should be speaking to, send us a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. And Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Everyone, keep your eye on the future. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.